Welcome to the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. I'm Sean Aylmer. Well, reporting season is nearly at an end, which means it's time to check in with Matthew Kidman. Matthew is Principal at Centennial Asset Management, and it's always worthwhile finding out what he liked, didn't like, and where the opportunities might be. Matthew, welcome back to Fear and Greed. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm well. What do you reckon of earnings season? How would you describe it? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because of where, where June 30 falls. Now, that sounds strange. It falls the same day every year. But true. But on this occasion, of course, domestically, a couple of things happened around June 30 that don't normally happen, which was Sydney shutting down, then Victoria, and then obviously we had Queensland in and out of shutdowns, and then regional New South Wales. So what the market was looking for was that update from a lot of companies that are domestic focused uh, so that, you know, first six or seven weeks, because by the time they report, they've got those numbers. And beyond that, the international facing stocks, everyone wanted to know how the reopening was going, especially in the US, how's it going in the UK. So the numbers that were actually printed, they're always important, but they were to June 30. A lot has happened since that date that had investors very interested so if you take the domestic-focused company so far, it seems to me that there's a lot of uncertainty about where earnings are up to this first couple of months of this half year. That's definitely the case, especially the consumer-facing type of companies, retailers and, and the like, and car retailers and so on, because they did actually have a terrific June half as a whole. But the market was all waiting for, we are cycling these massive numbers that came out of the COVID shutdowns last year and everyone started to go online. You know, margins and sales would start to adjust back to normal. Then, of course, we get another lockdown. And a lot of those companies reported the first six, seven weeks where sales are down, say in Sydney, which has been in the hardest lockdown for the longest period, down 20-odd percent. Interestingly, investors took that in a strange way. For some companies, it was a bad thing. For others, they just said, well, that's fine. We know you will recover. We've seen the playbook now. We saw it last year, what happens. We're looking at it again. We know what's going to happen. They were very, very relaxed about it. And off we go. And we know what will happen next year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think a lot of investors and a lot of companies as well are complacent. A couple of media companies, old world media companies I listened to, they said, when we reopen, things bounce back. And so when we reopen again, it'll bounce back again. I don't know. It depends how long this lasts and, and depends on how the consumer's feeling at the end of it. I don't know whether it'll be the same as last year. Taking those media companies, so if you listen to Seven and to Nine Entertainment, they were reasonably upbeat about the outlook, though absolutely hammered by the market on the day of their results. Is it that investors weren't buying their story? What do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's a bit unfair. To use an American expression these days, results on the day and the couple of days following is a bit of a crapshoot. A lot of it is driven by machines that get fed information that they disseminate. It takes about a week or 10 days for investors to get their minds around results. But the knee-jerk reaction on the day, it's become more pronounced over the last four or five years. And now someone like me who looks at results from the ground up and says, well, that's a solid result, the valuation's good. We kind of fear the first couple of days of an announcement around reporting season because of the volatility. I think they were unfair. Nine was interesting because NEC, as it is now, obviously owns Fairfax, owns the Nine Network. It also owns Stan. And believe it or not, hidden among all those, Stan's not one of the big profit contributors, but it's definitely a big contributor to the valuation. People were disappointed with Stan. They knocked 10% off on day one. Seven was a bit more interesting. Obviously, they've come through a quarter or, or the half where they reported pretty strong growth. They've got their balance sheet back in order, which was always a worry with Seven. And then they've obviously blown the 
the doors off the barn with one of the great Olympics as we're all shut down in Sydney and Melbourne watching the Olympics and how well they did. Normally that can be a black hole. So I think it was a bit unfair how they sold them and there's probably some reasonable value in both companies. What about the international facing stocks and the miners are the big ones, some of the healthcare guys and like Sonic had a cracking result. I think CSL was pretty upbeat about where it was going. What did you think about those offshore focused companies? Yeah, so it was interesting because the results season's been bookended by a couple of things. First, at the front end of that was the decline of the iron ore price after one of the great runs. So that really impacted that sector going into results. We don't really care too much about results from the big iron ore miners. We care about the commodity price and it fell over at the start of the month and they've been massive underperformers. Add to that, we saw what BHP did, our biggest company in Australia, they collapsed their dual listing structure and For some reason, no one's ever been able to explain why Australia always trades at a premium. That meant that stocks, compared to the UK that is, that meant the stock collapsed down to the UK price. So that was a disaster. In terms of the big healthcare companies, which are global, you've got Sonic, CSL, Resmeg, Cochlear, the device companies. That was really, really mixed. The results as a whole were very strong and there's no reason to get off those companies in the long run. They're great long-term growth stories. But CSL was sold heavily on day one. It missed, guess what? They all bought it back. It's like, well, you can do whatever you want, CSL. They're the favoured child in the Australian market. We'll buy you anyway. We'll look after you. We'll buy you the lollipop or the ice cream when we go to the zoo. Others, not so well. Sonic had had that big run, obviously COVID enhanced with all, all the testing. And it disappointed in the sense that the expectations were so high. Cochlear was a bit the same. Everyone had this massive rebound because hospitals were closed last year and, and this was a rebound and it was a little bit disappointing. While ResMed was the opposite way, everyone thought that was a terrific result. I think once you see through those big healthcare companies, nothing much has changed. They've all got their own growth stories. They're all chugging through COVID okay. You just got to work out the valuation. So I think a tick for those guys. Stay with me, Matthew. We'll be back in a minute. My guest this morning is Matthew Kidman, Principal of Centennial Asset Management. Now, the company I liked most was WiseTech, simply because (laughs) it it reported better than expected results, but not not significantly better, and it jumped 50%, and then it came off a bit, but... You know, its founder ended up with about $2.7 billion extra worth of funds in his equities account. I think old Richard's got very wise to how the market thinks <laughs> in, around results. Look, WiseTech's an interesting one. It was just a roller coaster ride. It was a lot of fun watching it. We're neither long nor short that stock, but you get the feeling that a lot of people were short and there was a massive covering. And how they did it was sales were quite good, but it was the margins that surprised everyone, the leverage in that company, which for a long time hasn't come through. It's been criticised, even though a global company, that most of its earnings growth and earnings leverage comes from acquisitions and it hasn't got much organic growth, as the market likes to talk about. But on this occasion, it just went bang with its margin and everyone stood back and went, wow, this thing is really, really operating well and there is leverage in it. And I think all all the shorts, because it's quite a big tech stock for Australia, and there's been questions around their accounts that have been called out before, they all got taken out. And that's why I think it it rallied like 55% by the end of the day, it was up 40. The intraday moves were ridiculous. And that's what I mean. Sometimes you just got to stand back and let the dust settle on these results because the knee-jerk reaction, the trigger gun action. But WiseTech, definitely a good result, definitely surprising on the margins. And you would think it's going to have a pretty good year ahead of it once this dust settles a bit and the share price finds where it wants to be. Something else that I thought was interesting, and it was came through in A2 Milk and Blackmore's, the Vitamins Group, 
A2 Milk said it was channel to market, channel to China particularly, was worse or as bad as everyone expected and it got hammered. Whereas Blackmore said, actually, we've sold a bit more to China and its share price took off. It's amazing the influence China has on some of these companies. Yeah, and that's been probably one of the biggest changes that's happened in the Australian economy market over the last couple of years. If you remember going back to 2015 through to probably 2019 pre-COVID, you had to have a China story. That was the only way you could grow. And that's been flipped on its head for obvious reasons, political mainly, and all the tariffs and the anti-Australian feeling. So with those two companies, it's quite interesting. Blackmores has been a struggler for a long time. It was the first kind of bottle to fall off the wall. It just didn't quite get, as they changed regulations in China in regards to imports, they didn't quite get it right. They tried to circumvent things like the Daigo market and you know, have direct distribution in China. It didn't work. They couldn't get their stock right. Everyone questioned whether the brands were strong. Meanwhile, A2 was the opposite. They really supported that Daigo market and went through the roof. That's kind of flipped now. The Daigo market's pretty well dead. Not completely, but it's close to dead in Australia and probably New Zealand. The people are not moving backwards and forwards between the two countries because of the virus and obviously because of political constraints. And so their channel to market has been cut off all of a sudden. While Blackmore's, maybe maybe they're not there yet. I think it was just a little bit of a surprise it wasn't that bad and the stock ticked up. But they've kind of built their own way into China and that is starting to look okay. I wouldn't say it's there. The one that's quite interesting that had a pretty good result was Treasury Wines. And that's another one facing China, which I think it's worth a look because their brands are proving to be so strong that they've been able to do some incredible things in a short space of time. We know the tariff, the 200% tariff that was placed on Australian wines, it absolutely killed the Penfolds brand in particular for Treasury, which had been a boom product in China. They liked the numbers. They liked the colour. They thought the brand was as good as any in the world. They were buying it. You couldn't get enough of it. And Treasury played the game a bit. They used to bundle up all their other wines and say, well, you've got to take the lot if you're going to get Penfolds. And eventually that came unstuck with the tariffs and the Chinese got cranky with them. Lo and behold, they've started to build channels into the US with new brands and that's got traction. And believe it or not, Penfolds through other channels is starting to find its way into China. It's being landed in other countries who then export it into China. It's been quite an amazing change. And you kind of think maybe the power of a good brand is winning out over a government in the short term. We know that mightn't last. Well, you can't talk about Treasury without talking about Snoop Dogg. (laughs) Snoop Dogg helps everyone. (laughs) It does. Snoop Dogg, of course, is a brand ambassador for 19 Clouds, which is one of the brands they sell into the US. That's correct, yeah. yeah. So he's done an incredible job and got it off to a flying start. And that was smart marketing. That's what I mean. This management has, they were down on their knees not long ago. Their their whole growth path was into China. And, you know, I don't know whether they got together with Snoop Dogg and it was Snoop Dogg's idea, but um, (laughs) someone got it right. And now it looks like the US is a genuine market for them, which was never the case. They, they've never been able to break. And it's not a big wine drinking market. They tend to drink what comes out of the Napa Valley, especially at the more expensive end, but Treasury's on its way. Yeah. I mean, it just shows that the benefit of good management, I suppose. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's, I think what the market's been surprised is how quick it's happened. Yeah. But good management can make good decisions. And if they're vindicated, bang, off you go. Now, one of my favourite stocks is Domino's, always has been. In fact, I remember I did some work for Domino's and I ran into you at an investor briefing where you were listening to its story. Now, this is a few years ago, so not really telling tales out of school here. I mean, they had a strong result and just keeps seeming to be able to add stores to its network. Yeah, incredible story again. 
I've underestimated Domino's and, and Domino's and his team. You're not alone, though. You're not alone. No, no, and cheap pizzas. I mean, they've been interesting. They've effectively disrupted market after market they go into by basically having cheap pizzas and really quick delivery. Yep. You know, price is still a disruptor. It's just not technology. But what's happened here is they've got their international avenues firing. It took a long time to get France and the Netherlands going and, and into Germany. But more recently, as we know, they've taken up the Japanese franchise for Domino's. Domino's coming out of the US, but Train Group has got the Japanese distribution agreement. And they've somehow convinced the Japanese to fall in love with pizza, the group, <laughs> which is another amazing sales story because it's not natural for the Japanese to come home on a Saturday night late and say, well, let's have a pizza. <laughs> well, it's about the equivalent to Breville selling coffee makers to Italians. I think that's another great story. Yeah, Breville's a powerhouse. It was always a good brand. And what people underestimate is that Australian kitchen appliances are very high quality kitchen appliances. And in our world, the Australian world, Breville's been around forever. Everyone had a Breville uh, sandwich make, toaster maker. But they've done a terrific job and it's been an overnight success that took like 15 years in the US. But they've taken it everywhere, as you said. They've gone into Europe and their quality, they're not the the Bentley or the Rolls Royce, but they're definitely a BMW. People like what they've got and they've changed management four or five years ago. And once again, they've done a terrific job and during lockdowns, what else are you going to do? We're all drinking 17 cups of coffee a day. And if, if we're drinking 17, you would imagine the Italians are drinking 30 or 40. <laughs> Matthew, thank you for talking to Fear and Greed. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sean. That was Matthew Kidman, Principal of Centennial Asset Management. This is the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. Join me every morning for the full Fear and Greed podcast with all the business news that you need to know. I'm Sean Aylmer. Enjoy your day.